a seat. Thank you very much, Ruth and Nathan. So, the book of Hebrews, we come almost to the end. I thought it was going to be the end, and I, was, I looked at the chapter and I thought, man, there's so much for us to talk about. And we're going to do verse 1, certainly, perhaps verse 2 and verse 3, if we get there. There's so much in verse 1. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are building your church as a family that belongs to you, that belongs to one another, and you challenge us this evening to love one another and to keep on loving one another as family, as brothers and sisters. Teach us more of that tonight, please. Convict our hearts, persuade us, convict us of our sin, of our uh, laziness in our love for one another. And help us to rejoice in the fact that we can only love because we have been loved by you. May anyone outside looking in, someone who doesn't belong to you yet, may they see in the church a family that they want to be a part of because of the love that you have infused in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I told you that on my Facebook page I put to some of my Brazilian friends to see if they said anything different to what you said tonight. And what's very interesting is that the theme that kept popping up was people saying, I will, that was my little silly video that I put on there, my round face, um, I will die for my family, but I will not die for anyone outside my family. I mean, it was, it was like everybody who knew me, you know, Christian, non-Christian alike, and that's the thing that they were putting. And someone even put... Um, as a matter of fact, I wish I had, because there was a long-standing friend of mine uh, who had, I did not realize, and he sent me a private message saying, and I lost my youngest daughter, and I wish I had been able to die in her stead. How powerful the love of a father for a daughter, of a father for a son, of a mother for a son, and so on. It's a beautiful thing to see. Family working well, healthy, reflecting of God's love is a beautiful thing to see and to admire. And anyone looking outside into a family like that would want it for themselves, I think. So in our Hebrews overview, we've been talking about how Jesus is better. And tonight, he is a better family than anything else, uh, than any other family that we know of without him. We've talked about how Jesus is better than the prophets because he's the final word of God. We've talked about how he's better than angels. He has greater power and authority. He is greater than Moses because when we look at Moses, we have to look at him, see how God used him, and look beyond him uh, to the greater Moses, Jesus. He's a greater Joshua, better than Joshua, because he gives a rest that's better deeper, more satisfying in the promised land as we rest in God's word. We talked about that. He is the better priest and high priest, the ultimate go-between who understands us and sympathizes with us, brings us to God. And tonight, Jesus is a better family. And we're going to spend a few weeks talking about how. Because even though we might be able to say that in this passage, we see lots of things like this family is a family that we have, but a family that everyone should want when it's working properly, and they look at it. In Hebrews 13, we could say um, that this is a family that loves 
near, those who are near, brothers and sisters, and those who are far, in, in verses 2 and 3. It's a family that, in verse 4, is sexually pure. We can talk about that another week, next week. A family that is contented, in verses 5 and 6, and a family that is submissive, in the best possible sense of that word. But we focus on the first one tonight. And wouldn't you agree that some of our greatest friendships, deepest friendships and relationships, are those where we've probably gone through something hard together? Wouldn't you agree? That seems to be kind of rings true to me. If we've gone through something together, there's a closeness there. That's probably the reason why, um, in a family walk a few weeks ago, a child said to me, I want to see you cry. I don't think it's because they were a, you know, a budding sort of torturer or anything like that. I think it's because in the context of our conversation, we were talking about how you do feel close to someone when you've seen them cry or something like that, because there's a vulnerable place to be. So that can be as little as seeing someone cry, or as huge as maybe going through a season of bereavement with someone and comforting each other or another big life event. There are all sorts of things that for the Hebrews here, have provoked them to build a kind of love that has these complex relational dynamics that you really don't want to lose. And that shows us again, as we look at this passage, that when, it, when we read, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, the church really isn't a club. It isn't something you just sort of hop in and hop out of. And so verse 1 commands, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Keep that in your mind. Because oftentimes we're going to be challenged on this. Let's just talk about two quick challenges. One, of course, is that when we are going through that something difficult, we might magnify our differences. You know, uh, when we are going through something difficult, oh, I missed a lot of slides, didn't I? We might be tempted to be a bit short-fused with other people. I know you probably feel like that. When you're going through adversity, something's not going right, um, a relationship is a bit sort of tense, and you feel like you have this uh, short fuse and you know, it's full of gunpowder because you can explode again and again at different people. Think of the arguments that this particular church or churches could have been having. Think back to chapter 1. They, as they think about the place of angels, they were tempted to worship angels, these great beings. Or as they discuss the role of the law, which in the book of Acts, you're going to see how that plays out in the church, how it can be complicated later on. Or the value of the temple, where they uh, had been used to worshiping God at, and all of a sudden Jesus says, uh, the temple, the true temple. You might think, who's a true believer or not? What do we do with people who, if you look at chapter 5, are a little bit stubborn and not listening? Chapter 5, verse 11, they no longer try to understand. Being around people who are like that, there can be a lot of tension. And in all of that, the difficulty, the missing Judaism that they left behind that we've talked about, the easiest thing for us to do is to say, I'm done. This relationship is too hard. I don't need to be seeing these people. I don't need to be around these people at Walton Church. I'll follow Jesus on my own. Okay, I'm going to be a Christian that doesn't go to church. The easiest thing to do is to do that. What about us today? We're not going to be necessarily arguing about, you know, the temple. Uh, we don't give up, we're not tempted to give up loving each other for the same reasons. But who's to say that when we disagree about doctrine, 
we don't love each other less because we disagree not well. Or about the way the church is run or the way we do friendship or the way we communicate with each other or not communicate with each other about how we feel or personality clashes. We can implode on all sorts of things that aren't even to do with something explicitly said in the Bible, like someone's life choices or personality or career choices or something like that. And the culture around us would expect that the family of God, when there's a bit of tension, and it's, I mean, they're not really biological family, so you can just sort of walk out, you can leave, you know? That's what they would expect. But this is when Jesus says, John 13, 35, they shall know you by your love for one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So we have to speak into that danger of maximizing our differences when things are hard or when church is not the way you like it to be. It's very important for you if you haven't been able to come to the church building for a long time. Here's the other danger, that we can actually not only can our differences be overemphasized, but um, our love can grow cold. Let's say that we disagree on something. And it's one thing to disagree as God's people, but then to actually hang out with each other at the golf course for those of you who play this boring game. Um, Or um, for us to disagree with each other, but actually be able to go for a walk together, or go to football, or something like that. We are able to remind ourselves that our relationship is more and bigger than our disagreement, and we can keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. But in this crisis, we've not been able to do that. It's another thing, isn't it, to disagree, but actually only see them I don't know, in one lesson at school, you know, someone picked a fight with you at school and you only seen them in that lesson and there's no way to remedy the relationship. That's a big difference. So some challenges for the Hebrews, going back to Judaism, what they, what they knew as comfortable, going back to what they know, uh, it's where all their friends were. And you think Christianity today, for you if you're a Christian, is hard. Some people might take the make. In their case, people were perhaps going to be threatened with physical violence. And you have to deal with relationships and work at them because these people in Hebrews chapter 5, for example, they are still on milk and not solid food, meaning they've not invested in their walk with God and they're hard to be around. Perhaps you feel like that about someone here this evening. Perhaps you feel like that about me. People who have been slow to grow or don't want to grow or don't want to let God's word cut them to heal them. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 with me for a second and go to verse 11. It won't be on the screen. Here's what it reads. Think about how difficult it might be to be around this people in a church. Hebrews 5.11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant, a baby is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So Hebrews is warning us, saying, how do you love, or do you want to love, people who perhaps no longer try to understand? People who many times need to hear the basics of the faith again and again because they don't take note. They don't want to talk to you about it. Maybe something is preached from the front several times and they've been a Christian for 10, 15, 20, 30 years and they just don't get the basics. Not crazy theological stuff. And as a result, it says they're still 
an infant. This isn't the kind of immaturity that you see me do when I'm being silly with the kids and, you know, jumping hula hoops and that sort of thing. This is the kind of immaturity that perhaps says, do you know what? Speaking in tongues, if you don't do it, you're not a Christian. Not a proper one, anyway. Or maybe if you're not extroverted and you can't do something at the front here, you're not a proper Christian. The immaturity that hasn't invested in the basics of the Christian faith, what makes someone a Christian, what makes someone close to God, being exactly as I do on every point, you have to have my views on baptism, on the second coming, on Bible translation, on career choices, or you're not a proper Christian. Imagine being in a church where perhaps someone, that, someone thinks that of you. Can you see why Hebrews 13.1 would want to say, keep on loving? Because a family that loves like that becomes like the most beautiful family to behold. The most beautiful family to be in and to behold from the outside. Because part of that keeping on loving is letting God's word in Hebrews 4.12, God's word that is alive and active, cut us, judge us, our thoughts and our attitudes. And I need to be open for you to loving me be able to challenge me perhaps on something I've said or done. And then when they see those outside the family of God, when they see us caring for the vulnerable, being patient with the obnoxious, being inclusive of the really awkward person, they will see that and they will see, don't they love one another? I can see the message as well as hear it of forgiveness and new life that they have. So this would be the family everyone wants. The family we have would be the family everyone wants. But just in case I know that some of you might be thinking, um, I don't want that to happen. I don't want anyone new to come to our church. Um, all I want is for people, when they come to our church, to actually not join. I want them to know that this is a place for me and not for them. I want them to leave. If that's you tonight, here is my top advice for you. Be a family that nobody wants to join in. Are you ready? Here's what you're going to do. Number one, if you think that you can do it better, any ministry of the church, let them know. This is top tip for you if you want people to look at our family and not want to join, okay? So if you think that you can do something better, I don't know, maybe you think this morning's sermon, Andy, I think I can do better. Let him know, okay? Um, number two, don't make any allowances for children or young people. Have they broken something? Have they tripped an older person up? Shout at them. Exclude them, okay? If you want nobody to join our family, do that. If you've seen any children crying, three steps for you to deal with that. Stare, stare, stare. Do that, okay? If some child's crying, do that. Make sure they feel unwelcome. Number four, is someone doing something well? Do not tell them. Do not encourage them in that way, okay? Have you got beef with someone? Explain exactly how you feel to someone, not them, not them. Don't talk to them. Tell about how you feel to someone else. It has nothing to do with it at all. Okay? This is how you make sure the family of God, nobody wants to join it. Number six, are you in charge of a ministry of the church? Welcome, zero suggestions. None. Okay? So that if someone wants to join the church and they're coming in, they just feel exactly they've got nothing to offer. Number seven, make sure that anyone knows you're not allowed to ask difficult questions. Okay? Can't ask a question about LGBT issues or about sex or anything like that. Um, but most of all, since I mentioned that, don't talk about any uncomfortable issues ever. Do not even say the word sex. Not in youth group, not anywhere. 
Now, we want to have a bit of fun, of course, but can you see how in all of these things it's easy for us to say we love one another and be a family that welcomes those who are from the outside, but actually to unsay it with the way that we behave. I'm not saying that any of those things were targeted at anybody this evening, by the way. That was just an interesting um, snapshot of what can happen. But when someone outside God's family can see us and see people who are completely not like that, they would see the family we have and they would want it. In Hebrews chapter 2, if you could turn there for a minute, I just wanted to tell you, what do we mean? What does the author of Hebrews mean when he says, love one another as brothers and sisters? Because you see, my go-to text would be somewhere in the book of Galatians or in Romans to say that we are adopted by the Father. But the writer of Hebrews says that we are family in a slightly different way. That I think it seems borderline wrong to hear it. But let's read verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Well, Jesus is the one who makes us holy. He's the same family as me. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them, you and I, who believe in him, brothers and sisters. And the context is uh, explaining that Jesus is better than angels. And we talked about how Jesus is superior to our ideas of religion and spirituality. And in chapter 2, for Jesus to be able to rescue us, he needed to become a human being so that he could be the sacrifice and make us holy by the sprinkling of his blood. And now anyone who puts their faith in him, we are his brother. We move from, from being the brother of a fallen human, Adam, with all of the baggage of being under God's judgment, to being a brother of the first, uh, of the Lord Jesus, the holy human and new family. So ours has a deeper bond than by blood, because our bond is by the blood of Jesus. And this is really meaningful, because if I'm family with you, because I really like your hairstyle, in lockdown, we would have not been friends anymore, because all of your hair looked a mess. All of your hairs? What's the plural for that? I don't know. Um, if it's anything other than the blood of Jesus and the gospel that unite us, we could easily get sick of each other and quit. This is really meaningful. And so here's the challenge. All of that that I've been saying, loving brothers as brothers and sisters, is like loving those near us. But there's a couple of examples of uh, loving those far that we are tempted not to engage with. Hebrews 13, verses 2 and 3. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. So let's see some examples of loving people who are far, strangers. Has anyone here moved cities at least once? Cities, okay. Yeah? You can see that some, some of the Chesterfeldians, you know, they're like, I was born here, I'm going to die here, you know, I love this place. <laughs> 
Anybody here moved countries? Countries, okay? Subset of the group. And one of the things that tends to stop, would you say, is that true of you? Because it's been true of me. When you move countries, is that those relationships that were close when we were living in those countries, you, you talk less and less, call less and less, social media less and less, until eventually they probably stop. You don't get in touch with each other. Is that true of anybody? You feel? Yeah? Some of us, um, some of you have been very, very good uh, at keeping in touch with other people. Now, here are two categories of people that Christians are called to love, but that we, because we don't see them so often perhaps, would be tempted to say, I'm just not going to engage with them. But that it's really beautiful when we do love them. Strangers that we must be hospitable, hospitable to, and prisoners. So what are these strangers? It might be surprising for you to know that these were probably Christians who were traveling uh, and teaching the scriptures, so traveling preachers um, and other sorts of brothers to have fellowship with. And it wasn't so simple, was it, to find your nearest hotel? Uh, because there was the danger of someone taking advantage of you in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of places. I can identify with this because I was talking with my neighbor uh, about how you know, there's been someone in our neighborhood here, in the neighborhood watch channels, it's been saying that they've been trying doors of cars outside. And I'm like, I never leave my car door open. You know? And I've seen some people in this country who are just so very trusting. They walk, wake up in the morning, they go outside, turn the car on, um, turn the ignition on, go back inside, leave the car on, outside. And I'm like, what if you're asking for it, for someone to come and take your car away. In Brazil, they would, you know? And the awesome thing about hospitality in this context is you are loving a brother or sister, a traveler, who would have otherwise been in a vulnerable place, been able to take advantage of. And I think that's one reason why it's awesome. Another reason why it's awesome to be hospitable is this. It's a bit of an adventure. A bit of an adventure to do that. That's why he mentions this example. Story time. Do you remember this story? Genesis chapter 18. Abraham is living his life. Three blokes appear. Um, the Bible already tells us one of them is uh, the Lord there, uh, and angels there. And Abraham is like, According to my culture, I'm going to be hospitable. Okay, I'm going to give you something to drink. Um, I'm going to kill a heifer and provide for you, bake some cakes, do all that business. Okay, because hospitality is a really important thing. Honorable, I honor you by loving you and giving you something which is a blessing, food, fellowship, and so on. And while they're having that conversation, uh, the men are in the tent, and the men say, "Hey, Abraham, where's your wife Sarah? How's she doing? You know, she's going to have a baby." And she laughs outside, you know. And she's later rebuked on that because the angels are saying that Abraham is going to have a family so great that a nation uh, is what it will become. Later on, we also find uh, that because of his relationship, his friendship, there, his hospitality, he's been able to find that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be judged. And so he could plead with the Lord so that the city wouldn't be destroyed before uh, his um, family could get out, his extended family. What's the point of this? I think that the point why this is mentioned here is that sharing what you are and what you own 
with a stranger, a brother or sister who might be in need, can have a huge impact in God's mission. The stranger here, for the Hebrews would have been a traveling preacher, but who knows? Could have been an angel. Could have been something crazy like that. And so it was a risk, but it was a bit of a blessing roulette. You are hospitable to someone, and you might be rewarded by the Lord as you do it. I'm not saying that angels are going to sort of turn up in your living rooms or anything like that, although who knows. Um, But I am saying that the point of this uh, story being mentioned here is that hospitality, you give of your energy, of your wealth, of what you have, but you also receive, and that's part of God's plan. That's something that, as I think about our church, our church does so well. And it challenges me to do it, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Something that our youth do so well. The girls going for walks with young, of our younger girls. Uh, the lads um, kind of playing and, and kind of being in the lives of the children, including them in stuff. Last Sunday night, we were just kind of having youth group in the garden and playing some games. And we just included some of our children, because why not? That is part of being hospitable too. And people outside the church family can see that. And so we want to use our wealth and our energy to bless other people. But here are some reasons why we might not want to do it, or we might not feel like doing it. You might say, I'm too busy. And I'd encourage you and say, that's part of our service to God, to be available, to forge kind of friendships and bonds of love with our brothers and sisters. You might say, I'm not a sociable person. But the body of Christ is diverse. I remember talking with two of our youth leaders in the previous church, and they were sort of shyer people who are best sort of one-to-one maybe and are overwhelmed if it was a large group of people. And they felt really bad because they would see me engaging with like 15, 20 teenagers, playing a game, including people, doing whatever crazy stuff that we do in building relationship. And they would think, and I wish I could do that. I feel less valuable because I don't do that. Until some of our girls who were also shy in the youth group said, I feel that my personality is legitimized by you being here as a leader. You being here as a leader who is introverted reminds me that it's okay for me to be me. So your hospitality in that, in that context seems like nothing, but was massive to a young person. It's interesting, isn't it? But you might not say, uh, you might say, my house isn't good enough. Man, this is, this is so hard because all of you are like richer than me. So it's, you know, it's tricky because like, you know, some of you laugh because you're like, mm, you know, awkward laugh. Um, it's probably true of many of you here this evening. And if I get bogged down on my house, is it clean enough, organized enough? I'll never have anyone over. I'll never even invite you for a walk into the garden because I haven't mowed the lawn yet this summer, you know. And I might be embarrassed, but I need to remind myself, keep on loving as brothers and sisters. It doesn't say keep on impressing other people with your house, life, and possessions. You might want to say, I don't even know what we would talk about. And some of of your Generation Z here this evening, you're like, already I find it hard to just sit with someone and have a conversation with them. And I would say, let God work. Be available. And lastly, you might even say, I can't cook, or I can't cook as well as, buy a pizza. 
I don't know. Something like that. Cheat. It's not about the food. It's about the relationship. And I certainly felt that going into your homes over the last two years before lockdown. So a few questions as we uh, kind of finish thinking about this. How do you feel about hospitality? Using your money, your time, your phone calls and texts to include other people in your life. What excuses might you want to use that I haven't mentioned? Is it risky for you? Is it hard to go out of your clique, the people that you like and that are like you? What is something that you need to pray? Are you afraid that perhaps people will see your mess? Or just a mess of your house? You know, people come to our house, they're going to see how I relate to Megan, to my wife. Um, I think of this one occasion where one of you, who here this evening, came to my house and uh, the oven broke. And so there was an incredible point of stress where you could see whether I lived out my faith and my love to my wife, or whether I said, just get over it. You know, it's going to be fine. I just came to the church and I cooked the rest of the meal and it was a little bit stressful, but we had a laugh. You know, and hopefully uh, you as a family, so you can tell me later on if you actually just saw that I was really not a Christian. Um, But that's the challenge for us, isn't it? To be a family that other people would want to have. Just very quickly then, verse 3. This other group, the prisoners. How many of you have watched this? Yeah? Be honest with me right now. Be honest with me right now. Because some of the men, some of the men raise their hands, yeah? I saw at least like one over there. Two, okay. Raise your hand right now. Just be honest with me. Did you cry? You did oh, Some wives are sort of nodding, saying, yeah, yeah, you know? I, we were watching this again early, early this afternoon, called The Midwife. Oh, it's, it's so hard because everything is babies, right? Like, and, you know, I've told you like, we had two miscarriages and all that sort of thing. Everything's babies. And, you know, I love kids. And, you know, that's why I'm a youth worker, children's work. Anyway, and, like, this afternoon, like, again, this lady was having twins. And it was a whole rigmarole. Are they going to live? They don't want help and all that business. And, um, and one baby's out and I was like a bloody mess of, you know, you know, it's like a bloody, sorry, not the swear word, as in it is, it's a lot of blood. It was hemorrhaging, okay? It's not the swear word. Um, anyway, it's all like this big mess. And, um, and the second baby comes, it's not breathing, not breathing. And the mom's on, and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, sob, sob, gasp, gasp. You know, so I'm, I'm holding it in because I'm like, I don't have time for this. I need to just, there is something about, if you've gone through an inkling of the suffering of the people you are thinking about, like I've not, you know, experienced the crazy stuff that I was watching precisely, but a little bit of the pain and the suffering in having had uh, experienced miscarriages was enough for me to oh, identify so deeply and feel as they felt. Remember those who are in prison and ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. And by a little bit of suffering, God can enable us to identify with who? Perhaps with those who are persecuted around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are struggling, and who it would be so easy for us to just not think of them, 
to not subscribe to his newsletter, to not have an interest in Open Doors or uh, Release International or some, some of those ministries. It would be so easy. There's something else here too. These aren't quite the prisoners you think, are they? I've just sort of alluded to that. These were probably believers who were imprisoned for their faith. And so what's the temptation if you're a Hebrew believer in this book? If they were in prison for their faith, and you go and you visit them and you bring provisions for them, well, what are you? Another Christian. You're declaring yourself to the world to be someone who also should be put in prison. There's a temptation to simply forget, which is why the author says, remember to love them as well. And so these are things that you can, as we finish this, pray and give, of course, towards the persecuted church. You can certainly think of them because we can't see them. But on a less related point, if these, if this is my logic, if these were prisoners who were Christians, they were in prison because they were Christian, and you might feel the temptation to not associate with them because there are consequences for you, how could that work out today? Are there other Christians you would be embarrassed to say you care about? You would be embarrassed to associate with at school because, like these Hebrews, although there's a far lesser cost, there is still a cost. It could be for all sorts of reasons you don't want to associate with them. It could be because they are weird Christians. Like sort of, if this is you, I feel so bad. But like sort of open-toed sandal Christians, like in winter, like, is that, that's a thing in America and here, that for some reason. Is that, I hope I haven't offended many of you here. Um, but maybe there's something strange about them that you think, I want to call other people my brothers and sisters, but not them. And it's something you and I need to repent of, perhaps because they are different or they believe something that embarrasses you. Maybe they are too bold. You might have someone at your workplace or in public or at school who's just, just an unashamed Christian. And you don't want to be associated with them because you're going to have the same flack that they have. Isn't it? What a challenge for us. You can fill in the blank with any reason. You might want to avoid the cost of being associated with a brother or sister in Christ. But as we finish, think about this. One of the things that I and uh, my family have been able to appreciate, particularly my family, I'll tell you why. No one else in my family believes as I do. Not my mom, not my dad, not my uh, two brothers and their wives and my nieces, uncles, aunts, cousins, nobody. And when I first became a Christian in Brazil and my mom and dad first had contact with Christians in a church, I can tell you what, even though they could say, I don't believe what you believe, but those people are lovely. I mean, they just welcome you, they embrace you. I mean, because in Brazil we hug, here we don't, but you know what I mean? They embrace you in other ways. And, um, and it's like they could see it visibly, the message of love. Keep loving one another as brothers and sisters. They could see that. We love near, we love far prisoners, and those who are ill-treated, and those who are strangers. So as we pray, here's the challenge for us. Are we doing that? I think we do pretty well at this church. At least the way I've been loved by you guys and welcomed. But we can always feel challenged. 
to continue to love more and more deeply, don't we? So before we celebrate communion in a moment, um, we are going to continue to think about how Jesus cleansed us just for this purpose, to be family. And that's why we're going to stand and sing, It's Your Blood That Cleanses Me. I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to stand. Lord Jesus, it's so hard to love people who are different to us, uh, who maybe annoy us for all sorts of reasons, whether it's because they're immature, whether it's because they have uh, different persuasions in, in, in their doctrine or belief or uh, the way that they live their lives. Or maybe their personality just really get on our nerves. Lord Jesus, thank you that you not only have you said from the heavens, love one another and keep on doing that, but you've given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. We want to say to you now, forgive us, because perhaps even today, we have spoken about each other in a way that was unhelpful, or we've hated someone in our heart, or we've thought we were better than someone for whom you also needed to die as much as us. We repent of that and we say to you, please, polish us up, continue to make us Christ-like, like you, so that people outside looking in would want to be part of this new family, forgiven, that displays your love. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.